0: soccer practice when it was raining and you didn't come?
1: I really don't. Anywho. He
0: took it with of freezers Freezer v-
1: Reservations on Eventbrite. Fucking.
2: L.S.D. Fap. Acid and fapping. Fapping and acid. Acid fapping. Fapping and acid. Fap, 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 fap. Acid. Thank you. That song is called Acid and Fapping. <laughs>
5: I'm
6: okay, a
7: song says, when you can't see your way, and you feel that you've gone astray, doing all you know how to do, remember, God has not forgotten you, hold your head up, and be
8: true to him, for he'll open doors for you.
7: Good morning, mutineers. This is the B, and you're listening to Labor and Love on Mutiny Radio here at 2781 21st Street. 2781 21st Street. We tell you how it is. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your life who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Mutiny radio, labor and love, where the labor meets the road. And the reason we l- need unions is because people don't do the right thing. Good morning, everybody. And we started out there with sukiyaki. I think the song was named sukiyaki because that's a Japanese word that most Americans have heard of. Uh, It doesn't really have anything to do with the food, sukiyaki. The song was written by a guy who was uh, walking away from a demonstration. He had joined a demonstration against selling Japanese bases or letting U.S. military have bases in Japan. And uh, a demonstration, as such demonstrations often are, was broken up by the police, the police beat up people, and uh, broke up the demonstration. And he was walking away from the demonstration very, very depressed. He says in the song, I want to put my head back, look up so the tears don't fall. Happiness lies somewhere else. One point he says, in the shadow of the stars, In the moon. Oh, that's sukiyaki. Then I followed up with uh, Walter Hawkins Singers. And if you're feeling down, there's nothing. Like gospel music. God will open doors for you. We had that one then. Santana on a real upbeat. Everything's coming our way. Despite the people in this country who want to write history in their own image, like Mr. DeSantis and his followers, Mr. DeSantis seems to have taken up the mantle of white leadership. He wants to lead. White people, as he puts it back into glory. Those good old days when a black person couldn't look a white person in the eye. The days of uh, lynching. Signs up in New York City. A man was lynched today. Hundreds of men and women lynched. In the name of white supremacy. The Klan wants to ride again. Are we going to let them? No. All right, and I spoke about our credos. Let's see here if we can find some of our credos. So you're not into politics. Your boss is, your landlord is, your insurance company is, and every day they use their political power to keep your pay low, raise your rent, and deny your coverage. Time to get into politics, huh? What do you think? All right, let's see if we got another one. This is Robert Reich, former Secretary of Labor under Bill Clinton. And Reich says, this is your reminder that the richest 1% own half of the stock market. And the richest 10% own about almost all of it, 92%. So you hear people on the news saying, well, the stock market, the Dow, the S&P. So when people brag about the stock market, it's not they're not talking about the economy that nine-tenths of us inhabit. Stock market. Here's a beautiful phrase that was written by George Sand, a woman novelist in the early half of the uh, 19th century. A woman who, of course, at that time had to disguise herself with a man's name. And here's what she wrote Humanity is outraged in me and with me. Must not dissimulate. Try to forget this indignation, which is one of the most passionate forms of love. And kind of politics we're talking about. Politics of love. The reason we're poor is not because of immigrants who are coming here and taking jobs. The reason we're poor is because we're not getting paid enough. Immigrants are people who are coming here to work. They're trying to find work so they can feed themselves and their families, so they can have places to live, so they can have better lives, which is always People move from one part of the world to another to improve their lot in life. Okay, so what do we got? What do we got for you? National Labor Relations Board Judge Glass. Warrior Met. In dispute with mine workmen. workers. Workers force UPS into a historic deal. We'll have an habituation room discussing that. Then we're gonna try something new today. There's a film, a silent film called A Corner and Wheat. By D.W. Griffith, it talks about the exploitation of labor, how manipulation by financiers. Of course, Griffith. Democratic socialists are fueling a hot labor summer. You bet they are. Tsukiaki, waited already. That'll be our going out song. And we talk about October 31st, November 1st, and 2nd as days of the dead, but the real days of the dead are coming. Tomorrow, August 6th, uh, 78th anniversary the bombing of Hiroshima. Two days later, Nagasaki was hit. Atom bombs. Somehow we've turned that monstrous act into character study? J. Robert Oppenheimer? The director says, well the movie's not about the victims. The movie is about the people who dropped the bomb. Made the bomb. Hmm. I don't know about it. We'll talk about it. History in two minutes. Got the assassination of Frank Little. NFL players fight for a voice. Medicare comes a reality. How long ago was that? Why shouldn't we have had medical insurance? Why? What happened? Why did it take to 1965? Great railroad strike, um, Happened in 1877, around the 4th of July. Somehow we missed it, so we're going to catch up on that. The greatest nationwide workers' strike of its time. Labor organizer Frank Little lynched, August 1st, 1917. I guess we'll get on to that. So, as you can tell, we got a full calendar, a full house today. Things that to talk to you Let's see about this, habituation discussing workers. We don't want that one.
0: What good is melody? What good is music if it ain't possessing something sweet? Now it ain't
4: a deal on new contract. Um, what are you hearing?
9: Right, well, it's been a whirlwind of a day. I took a train down to Baltimore from uh, my home of Brooklyn uh, for a live stream specifically focused on what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I get a and I get a press release saying uh, there's a TA, there's a tentative agreement. This is the largest private sector bargaining agreement in the United States, and we have uh, now a TA. We don't have the language, but right now it looks like there's a lot of significant gains. We don't know all the details and I'm getting a whirlwind of different reactions right now. Okay. But right, we're looking at, uh, you know, 340,000 workers, over half of them are part-time package handlers, warehouse workers. Um, the other half are these delivery drivers, the people that you and I interact with every day. We're dealing with a ton of different issues. Um, contract talks broke down about three weeks ago. And um, the, over the past three weeks, what have we seen? we've seen a ramping up of the contract campaign practice pickets, rallies, distributing information, trainings, all this stuff to make a strike threat credible,
4: mm, right? But strike would be one to... as Jane McAlevey would say.
9: Absolutely. As yeah. we've talked
4: about. So basically kind of doing all this groundwork. I just want to stop you because since the strike talks broke down, uh, the union's been like, okay, we're going to organize. We're going to get to work even before a, an actual strike.
9: Yeah. I mean, this has actually been a year. This has been a year of a contract campaign. This is not really common the last time. What we're looking at right now is, is truly historic moment for the Teamsters Union, for the labor movement in general, for the broader, you know, quote unquote economy and logistics. Um, and just to take one piece of that for the Teamsters, for the labor movement, they've been organizing this for a year. Um, mm. August last year is when they started, which I believe was the 25th anniversary of the last time UPSers went on strike, 185,000 of them in 1997, but they've been preparing. This is, this is, uh, something that is different. That is, uh, the result also of electing a new, more aggressive leadership in the union. Um, and this is happening in different unions around the country as well. We're seeing more confrontation with corporations and they've prepared. They are uh, distributing information. They're getting everybody mobilized, excited, raising expectations. That's mm-hmm. really key and important. And we're seeing that. So the past three weeks, they just ramped it up. You know, we saw all these uh, fun uh, videos all around, from all around the country. Workers uh, basically practicing the picket line. It's pretty amazing to see just like how many people have been organized. Um, and it clearly worked. Like, you know, workers, the most important thing on the tool belt of a worker is the strike right yeah. the threat of a strike and they they really brandished that and they uh clearly have gotten at least some of the goods we don't have all the language but the key things that were basically hanging up these negotiations were the wages for part-timers right. um and these are 60 percent of the workforce some of these folks are make 16 20 an hour before that before the cola increase it was fifteen, fifty and 50. poverty wages you make these are people in poverty um, and it looks like, you know, there are significant increases the people I'm talking to are saying, you know, uh, this is incredible. Other folks are saying this is not good enough. Um, okay. but really, we don't have the, all the information and we're going to see, you know, are they going to vote this down just to emphasize this is a TA. So this isn't set in stone yet. There's you know, we're gonna have to wait about three weeks till late August to know whether this is the contract.
4: And has that? Do you have any understanding about whether they've leveled the playing field in terms of the wages for part time? Like, are they being adequately compensated now? Are the people who I know we're getting, we're doing the same work, but then paying, getting paid a lot less? Has right. that changed at all in this contract?
9: Right. Well, there's a, just to go over some of the major issues. There's a, there's a bunch of them going on. The, what we were just talking about is like one of the lingering ones. Uh, contract talks broke down July fifth. That's what we were talking about now three weeks of like basically organizing um to prove you know we're ready or they're ready uh so they specifically part-timers they were bumped up to a base pay of 21 dollars and then there's a general wage increase totaling around 750 some catch-up raises as it's called basically for part-timers who have been there for a very very long time Mm -hmm. um and this is a terrible wage chaos uh going on at ups so trying to compensate people who've held out right right um so it looks like you know It depends on who you ask but it looks like there has been a significant bump there what you were talking about with like tiered wages and stuff this is impacting like tons of workplaces all over you know the country uaw you know like kellogg's uh ups is no different basically unequal work for equal um equal work for unequal pay two classes of drivers um and this was a huge issue because some We're making way less than the others and had less protections. This appears to be abolished, which is a huge, huge win. This is like one of the main things that they were fighting for over the past year. This is what Sean O'Brien, the president of the union uh, was basically running on, you know, kick-ass contract UPS, leveraging that for Amazon organizing which they are already starting. Um, We also are gonna see air conditioning in new package cars. There's obviously some devil in the details there. Um, You know, we saw people die um
4: yeah sorry. and and we've also seen you know i've seen recently like just like different viral videos of ups workers you know talking about solidarity and, and folks who are full-time and also are you know on the upper tier of the two-tier system but who are like no i would go on strike because solidarity because my fellow workers are getting underpaid and this is bs and it's making our entire industry more precarious uh-huh. but yeah i mean what is what, it's, it's so funny because you know the WGA and the SAG After Strike are going on. The AMPTP has refused to even come to the table with like a tentative agreement. That They don't have a counteroffer there. Mm. We have this counteroffer now. I mean, it's not as many workers um, and arguably more money to be lost. But it's really interesting that, like, clearly, um, and I don't I don't want to get into the like. Teamsters are more organized. I don't think that's what I'm saying, but I think it is interesting that that UPS has um, come to the table.
3: Well, it's about probably what they think, uh, Teddy, I don't mean to cut you off, but it's probably what they think uh, the value system is, right? We're still trying to prove value points here on, on the side of the creatives. Right. And if uh, the Teamsters strike, people, the world is dependent upon packages you understand and they're dependent upon people who execute that and this ha- and that has not become as automated and as you know all these oh a drone can do this and do that it still doesn't right. take place um we have a major storm out here right now i just saw two young women uh delivering packages bit you know what i'm saying so and they out there in that rain so they we don't have that end on the on, on on the other end, it's like, well, we don't have we don't need the actors. We don't need the writers. Mm-hmm. We can continue to do this without them. And so once, you know, there has been a dry spell of us being available and mm-hmm. we see what um, you know, the public also has to get involved with us as well. Like, when I hear UPS is going on strike, I'm like, uh, uh, <laughs> no, they're not. Because somebody better talk to somebody. I need stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, for sure. Here is that actors or writers are like, oh, what are they complaining about? We don't need them. Yeah, because you got marathons of, like, Green Acres that you can watch. But how mm-hmm. are you going to be able to watch that shit?
4: No. No, mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, once once the consumer boycott starts, if it does start for SAG, you know, and and for the industry, like, that's that, that's different. And or if for some reason, yeah, the, the trickle of streaming just stopped, if everything stopped, people would probably take to the streets, you know, to find out, to, like, Stranger Things has got to come back, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, people will have, will have lose their minds. But but this is, I mean, it's a good sign. I don't know, Teddy, if you wanted to. Were they expecting? I mean, this is a win, right? They They, wa- they don't want to go on strike. Nobody really wants to go on strike.
7: Okay, so that was the discussion of the historic UPS deal that the Teamsters have uh, achieved. The vote, like they said, the vote will come on in about two weeks towards the last part of August. We'll see if that becomes the agreement. But at this point, it's amazing, super victory for organized labor. Here's another one, Warrior Met, which is a, a coal company. Mine mine coal. Our workers mine coal. A national labor relations board administrative law judge has strongly blasted the Warrior Met Coal Company in its long-running dispute over a new contract with the United Mine Workers dispute which led bosses to lock out the firms 1100 miners for more than a year and a half the judge formally ruled the firms unfair labor practices broke the conflict the company officials were claiming that they couldn't afford the union's demands and the union's at reclaiming the give-backs the workers had to yield, keep the firm going when it was the old and bankrupt Jim Walter mine. Even as the firm gave out big bonuses to its corporate honchos in a poor area of rural Alabama and shoveled out millions of dollars in stock options and dividends to its Wall Street investors, it was claiming poverty and saying, paying the miners, force it to close. Boy, ain't that the way it goes. Pay the investors first. Pay out, you buy back stock, you buy back stock shares of stock. You pay out, pay stock options out to investors but the workers the ones who do the work the ones who are responsible for the wealth that's created they come last now why is that that's because what that's what the Wall Street investors want that's right the mine workers were entitled to review the mine's books but the mine bosses refused to turn them over and broke labor law too. That led UMWA to declare the strike was about warrior-met labor law-breaking, normally called unfair labor practices. Warrior-met was also hiring subcontractors to work alongside the miners. Another bone of contention in the bargaining between the two sides. The union sought information regarding non-union personnel because unit members felt they were being unfairly treated by warrior myth, Olivera's ruling Union bargainers explained they sought information on compensation and bonuses for foremen because union members reported foremen working alongside unit members had received large bonuses. Okay, so keep an eye on that. That's not a final ruling. That's a judgment. It might be. Typically, what a big company will do is just pay the fines, right? Get a slap on the wrist, pay the fines, and go on doing what they're doing. Okay, talk a little bit more. Got a corner on wheat. Let's put some music. Here's a working girl who's got two more bottles of wine. Okay, that set featured women, strong women. We had uh, that latest one, Cafeteras, Cafeteras, and the song is called Mujer Soy, and it's kind of a rallying cry for girls and women to assert themselves and make the world a better place. As Cafeteras. And we had malhombre. Malhombre uh, literally means bad men, but it's much more serious uh, swear swear word in Spanish. In in Mexico, and the singer was Lydia Mendoza, who in the late 30s and 40s worked a lot of the labor camps all along the border, and became the darling of the uh, Mexican workers, mal hombre, bad man. Now, who's our favorite bad man, alleged rapist? Rip-off artist, cheater, liar, mal hombre. Well, he's getting his day in court now. Let's see how that goes. I mean, just the fact that it's been two, three years, and look at the thing the man is accused of. Look at the things he did on screen in front of everybody. I was in San Diego this week, and people on the radio there, some of the people are apologists for him. They say, well, some people did things that, uh, that shouldn't have been done, but uh, the president... Uh, he, gets his right to free speech, but not the right to yell fire in a crowded theater, which is exactly what he did. The people, I mean, for everything, they have a qualifying phrase, right? Um, It's like they're trying to hold on to their audience but as the time gets closer and closer for his reckoning in court, they're kind of maybe hearing themselves for the first time about how ridiculous their defense of, of this man is. Okay. I have a special treat here today. There's a movie. That, First of all the filmmaker David Wark Griffith in the early part of the 20th century was kind of the pioneer and huge creative force of the the uh, movie business he was an innovator in many ways really pushed the whole filmmaking process ahead. Of course, we all relate to him as the maker of a racist movie, The Klansman. Ku Klux Klan, bitter anti black portrayal of of the relations in the south and uh, presenting reconstruction as a junkyard you know showing black legislators in the legislative uh, rooms you know crashing the place chasing white women In the middle of it is a little white girl. And there's this constant threat that black animals are going to come and rape her. At any rate, Griffith also made some other movies though. One of them is uh, from the point of view of the Red Man, you know, sort of a half-hearted, indictment of how Native Americans were treated right. by whites. And he also made this movie that we're going to discuss today, we're going to review today. And it's um, very, very anti capitalist Capitalist in the movie Get on with the movie. Corner and wheat. So, what we're going to do is, I'm going to show the movie and let you know what's going on, and we can later figure out what's happening. So, we start out with family, farm family, they're looking at their bags of wheat. Farmer's looking at his bags of wheat. His wife and little girl are there, and his father is taking the wheat up in his hands. And what he's going to do with it is plant it, plant the seeds of the wheat on his farm. Takes the bag up. Heads out to the field with his father. They're pretty busted. It's not not a prosperous family. But these are the people who grow the wheat. The next scene shows them walking the acreage, throwing the seeds out. Purros. plow follows behind them, pulled by a horse, we mix the seeds in with the dirt, showing the labor that goes into making. growing the wheat, and there's a guy following along behind them with a two-horse team and a plow, again showing the actual labor. Then we go to the wheat king engineering the great corner. Now what this guy wants to do, he doesn't have anything to do with real wheat. What he has to do is the price of wheat. What he's trying to do is to corner the market. In other words, get control of the prices so he can dictate the price of wheat up or down. He's sitting there at his desk with this admiring four suits behind him. And all watching as he manipulates the price and buys and sells weak contracts. Figuring out how he's going to do it. Says, yes, I can do it. He's going to Corner the wheat market, In other words where he becomes the man who can make the price go up and down at his whim, because he controls so much of the market. He's ecstatic. What a wonderful thing he's done. In the wheat pit is the next part. This is on. This is a scene on Wall Street. All the representatives and all the brokers are making deals. They're trying to make deals, of course, to profit. This is what goes on. All making deals, buying and selling wheat contracts. Eventually will turn into real wheat not real wheat, it's about the price of wheat and wheat futures. They're all holding up their sheets and they're yelling and trying to get sales. And they're all dealing with one another, holding their papers up, gesticulating. and Here comes the wheat king. They're all crowding around him, trying to get him to sell. Give them some money. It's not. He gestures like this. I've got you all in my hand. These people are incredibly upset and anxious that he won't sell. His answer to the ruined man's plea, get it in the pit where I got it. This is a man who's ruined. The weak king as he shakes hands with all of his followers. Here comes the man who's ruined, and he's coming and begging the weak king to show him some mercy. Get it in the pit where I got it. I don't care if you're ruined. The man is stricken. He almost falls down, but the Wheat King is so pleased with himself and so happy that he's been able to corner the market. Gold of the Wheat. Here he is at a plush mining. Dining scene, rich flowers and food and wine, women, high-class society women. And the weak king arrives and they all stand up and celebrate him, drinks and toast to him. But what's the effect of all this? This is the wheat king spending his money. The chaff of the wheat. Oh, okay, we're in a bakery now. In a bakery and people are lining up to buy bread and the sign that this is owing to the advance of the price of flour because the wheat king has been able to manipulate the price of flour. Loaves that used to cost 5 cents now costs 10 cents plenty of loaves on the table woman comes to buy one guy puts it in a bag for her she gives him 5 cents she says no now it costs 10 cents woman with a little girl comes in. Maybe it's the wife of the farmer. gives him five and he says, no, no, but wait, the baker says, now it costs ten. The woman looks at her money and she hasn't got enough money to buy the loaf. She has to give the loaf back. This is a direct result of the wheat king's Control of the flour market, wheat market. He can raise the price as high as he wants, which means the price of bread will go up. Well, now we're back at the Wheat King's dinner. We're all talking about how proud he is. We're all toasting him. He's obviously their hero of the day. Now we're back at the bakery, and there are whole lines of people waiting for bread, owing to the advance in the price of flour. Price of bread has gone up. Now the rich ladies are saying, "Well, l- can we go see, or you know, your operation here? Can we go see some actual wheat." He says, yeah, yeah, come on, let's go. Back at the wheat farm, there's the girl and the woman who couldn't afford the bread. Here comes the guy and his father. Have you got any money? And he puts his hands out and says, no. No. Price is so high. The high price cuts down the bread fund. So they're buying half loaves. Prices are so high that the baker can't buy enough. So he tells the people, I'm sorry. Owing to the advance in the price of flour, the usual five-cent loaf, no cost. Now, the wheat king and his rich people are going to go and visit an actual wheat elevator. He's gonna take them on a tour. Show them what happened. All the rich ladies are getting excited. The guy who works at the wheat elevator, looking down at the chute. Where the, where the actual wheat gets dumped. He's telling them, like wheat coming down and piling up in this wheat elevator, but he's saying, stay back, stay back. You don't want to fall in there. Okay, meanwhile, the wheat came. You have control of the entire market of the world. Yesterday added million. The wheat king is getting richer and richer because people are paying higher and higher prices for his bread. But he pulls the lever and falls down into the chute. Wheat is pouring down on him. Holding his hand up, he's trying to get out. Back at the bakery, there's a riot going on. There's a cop inside the bakery talking to the baker. The baker is afraid that people are going to come and take the bread. The cop says, I'll help you. Here they come. Here come the people who want bread. One of them makes a speech to the baker. The baker's saying, I can't do it. Cop is there. The cop hammers the guy on the head. Another cop comes. Hold a gun to the people. In the meantime, the wheat king is dying. Wheat is following on him. All we can see is his hand above the wheat. Here comes the worker again. All the rich people, and they're looking about, where's the wheat king? Well, the wheat king didn't even know that he shouldn't stand there, that the the wheat would come and wash him down into the chute. Everybody's, the women come back, the swells are there with their ties, everybody's saying, well, where's the wheat king? Nobody knows. So they leave. In the meantime, three people are pulling the weak king up. And the women come and the rich suits come and there's the weak king lying there. Martyr to his own riches wife falls down across his body. And the final scene shows the guy planting wheat again in the field. David worked Griffith. Beautiful, very basic, Lesson, economics of wheat, food, and big business. Farmers still throwing the wheat in the furrows. Corner in wheat by D.W. Griffin. Okay, so we're, oh, we're past the 11 o'clock hour and it's time to do, to do our plug of our sponsor. And the sponsor's name is, you guessed it. Jalisco. Now, San Jalisco. San Jalisco has been in the neighborhood for many, many years. It used to be called something else, but there was a lawsuit, a big company in Mexico that challenged the right of this restaurant and the mission to use its name No other reason than that you could go in there and take your your custom to San Jalisco. But we're not gonna deal with that. Como Mexico no hay dos. Y como San Jalisco tampoco. For over forty years the Ibarra family has been serving up the very best. In Mexican food to the people of San Francisco. What's your favorite? Enchiladas? Tacos? The ultimate in birria? The best salsa and chips in town? Brought to you before you order? How about your favorite vegetarian omelets? Vegetarian burritos? Tacos? They got them. Find them all and more at San Jalisco corner of 20th and South Van Ness in the very heart of the mission. Come on down to San Jalisco where the food tells you you're in Mexico. And I hope you do that. And if you do, please mention to Josie or Sophie or Magdalena that you heard about it Mutiny Radio, Labor and Love. Democratic socialists are fueling a hot labor summer. From strike support to training organizers and supporting union drives, DSA members are helping to build fighting labor movements. There's a war on the working class in this country, and the only way we're going to win is by building an army of organizers, says Anthony Rosario former UPS driver with Teamster's local 804. He adds, and you're it. Speaking as part of the second annual red-hot summer event in late July, organized by the Young Democratic Socialists of America. More than 25,000 people turned into the sixth Tune in to the six-week labor training and political education series. The event is among a handful of projects spearheaded by YDSA and its parent organization, the Democratic Socialists of America. 25,000 people. Just think, if half those people start organizing, One of the organizers says, the end of the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign morphed into a summer salting project. SALTS, labor organizers who seek jobs at non-union workplaces, have traditionally been paid by unions. Lately, DSA has been training SALTS on a voluntary basis as a means of growing the labor movement and making it more militant. The number of DSA members actively involved in salting has not been disclosed publicly, but a survey shows nearly 2,000 members have expressed interest and DSA has conducted more than 800 one-on-one follow-up calls. Part of a long socialist tradition. Socialists were instrumental in building the labor movement at the turn of the 20th century, organizing across industries and agitating for the eight-hour workday and the minimum wage, among other now-standard U.S. labor practices. Socialists became generally less visible in organized labor, after Congress expelled Communist Party members from union leadership through the Taft-Hartley Act. That's something we could really review on this show. The Taft-Hartley Act is one of the biggest anti-labor laws, issues of the 20th century. Socialists saw a steep decline as the second half of the 20th century took a neoliberal turn. Socialists have remained interested in labor. Socialists were among the founders of a Teamsters for a Democratic Union in 1976, for example. ESA has raised some 400000 for local labor struggles for striking teachers in Oakland, California, and Nabisco workers in Portland, Oregon. OK, check it out. It's on the In These Times website about how socialists are affecting the labor movement. If we can get that one back, did want to get. Um, other DSA efforts have also been involved in the wave of retail and restaurant organizing. Atulia Dora twenty-four, a worker in the first unionized Chipotle restaurant, says the union victory would not have been possible without the early guidance, resources, and support of Mission's Greater Lansing DSA chapter. Uh, So, that's by Indigo Oliver. Democratic Socialist. Okay, now let's dip back into uh, some labor history. Um, In the 1870s, this happened. Let's see if we can. Marking the 140th anniversary of the great railroad strike. So eighteen seventy-seven twenty-three, seven, one hundred and twenty three. That'd be the hundred and forty six. But listen up.
10: I'm Jessel Noor for the Real News Network. We're here at the B&O Railroad Museum on the 140th anniversary of the great railroad strike of 1877. I'm here with labor historian Bill Barry, who wrote a wonderful book about the, <laughs> about the railroad strike. So we're here at this exhibit the museum has created um, about the railroad strike. And we're going to get a quick guided tour um, through this uh, exhibit with Bill. But first of all, Bill, most people have not heard about the railroad strike. Um, Today, it happened 140 years ago. It started right here in Baltimore in Camden Yards. Um, more than 100,000 workers participated. Mm-hmm. They had to call in the, ha, almost half the army to put it down. Um, 10 people were killed right, right here in Baltimore. Hundreds more were injured around the country. It was called an insurrection. It was called a riot, a Bob. revolution. Um, so talk about this really important seminal
11: moment in well, history. what got me started was if you look at Camden Yards, uh, the state put up a historical marker there to commemorate the strike. And one of the things I think is very important is that workers need to know their own history because it's a guide to tomorrow. And it also needs to be done in a way that anybody can understand it. A lot of histories, you have to have uh, 12 years of graduate school to get through the first two pages. And so as a union organizer and a labor historian, I just thought this was a great moment. And when we put the historical marker up, I was surprised and disappointed how few people actually knew about the history of the strike. So I said, it's not taught in history books, it's not talked no, about today at no, all, in mean, textbooks. That. Or That's anything. right, and many of the textbooks are incorrect in that it started in Martinsburg, West Virginia, when in fact it started right at Camden Yards. In a time of small businesses and workshops, the railroad was the first national industry employed tens of thousands of people, both on the construction of the railroads and on the railroad operating itself. And there's a whole history of labor disputes on the construction of the railroads. Uh, Irish families living in tents and shanties along the rails as they went from the east to the west. were more familiar with the stories of the Chinese laborers moving from the west to the east. But it was a huge industry. John Garrett became the president in 1855, an incredibly wealthy man and a really dynamic visionary who saw the future as railroads and began to move so that the B&O went as far as Chicago, but was linked to nationwide railroads. And what you see here, though, is he took advantage of what Naomi Klein calls the shock doctrine. And when the Depression of 1873 hit, he and a lot of the other railroad owners used that as an opportunity to cut wages. So what provoked the strike was the second 10% wage cut and you will see the time when the railroad
10: was making making money well
11: they were cutting back there were some problems with the depression but he never cut executive salaries never dropped a 10 percent dividend to the stockholders but began to cut people put them on short weeks uh, all sorts of different uh, events but the minutes of the board meeting which are up uh, here and we have copies of it the week before he said we're gonna have a 10 percent pay cut And we assure our employees will cheerfully concur with our decision. And he was so confident that the workers would take it that they canceled their monthly board meetings for the rest of the summer so they could all go away. So the following Monday, the 16th of July, workers went down to Camden Yards to get paid and get their assignments. And they were told the 10% cut was in effect. And they said, we're not working. And that started it. And it spread all across the country. Went to Martinsburg, went to Chicago, went to Pittsburgh, went to San Francisco, and dozens and dozens of small rail lines along the way. And it involved the strikers, their families. An interesting group that was involved were the militia. And the militia were the equivalent to the National Guard. And they were workers, relatives of strikers, friends, who were looking for a second job. And I just have a newspaper article in the other room about how a militia was disbanded for fraternizing with the strikers. Mm -hmm. But what we saw here was the last Friday, first Friday of the strike, the 20th, um, the militia was sent to uh, Frostburg. And they tried to march from their armories down. And as the armory in the west side by the shot tower, militia left there, people coming home from work started stoning them and yelling at them and they shot and killed 10 people, none of whom was involved in the strike uh, right by City Hall on Holiday Street. Subsequently then, the president of the United States sent the army in and crushed the strike. And what you see here are Gatling machine gun companies. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the Gatling letter. And I found that in the archives as a miracle uh, a number of years ago. And I can give you a copy of that. I have true copies of that I can send you. but. We'd heard about that. So
10: actual like large scale machine guns were brought into Camden. Yes,
11: yes, and the Gatling machine gun company president is apologizing because he can't supply enough Gatling guns. You can see here in that drawing here where the Gatling guns are. They're being brought in from Fort McHenry, and there are other uh, pictures that are in the book of machine guns around, uh, blocking the people off from, here's the original Camden Yards, and people will recognize that, obviously, as the entrance to the, to the uh, stadium. The strike then went to Pittsburgh. They had a huge event the Sunday night of the strike where the militia was sent, one of the tricks that the railroad companies did was to send militia to the opposite end of the state so they wouldn't know anybody. And so the militia that was sent to Pittsburgh was from Philadelphia. And they were pushed into the roundhouse. And you have to remember that many of the people on both the strikers and in the militia had been in the Civil War. So they knew military tactics. Uh, they got the uh, Pittsburgh, uh, Philadelphia militia in the roundhouse. They then got cars of fuel oil, set them on fire, and rolled them into the roundhouse. So you see here, this is a Pittsburgh damage report. Um, and the militia then came out. So I'm
10: reading it. It says 39. 39- buildings, 140 yeah. locomotives, yeah.
11: 1,200 rail cars were destroyed. Yep. Yeah. By an enormous fire. Well, the, the Thursday night of the strike here, uh, the Friday night after the people were killed, uh, there was a wooden building outside Camden Yards, which was used as a telegraph office, and the strikers burned that. And you can see that picture here. Now, one of the things that's important in how the strike is portrayed, and this is a picture from Alan Pinkerton, and Alan Pinkerton started the first company, spy company.
10: The, the Pinkertons, which a lot of people Right, will, right. Are,
11: uh, and his um, logo was a huge eye, and the motto was, this eye never sleeps, and that was the origin of the term private eye. But he had just finished, before the strike, killing um, 11 people in Pennsylvania because he infiltrated the uh, union group up there called the Molly Maguires. And so in June, it was called the Day of the Rope, and 10 of them were hung mm. in Pottstown week before the strike started. But if you look at this drawing, which was in his magazine and in his book, the women, Irish women, are portrayed like monkeys. You see the underslung jaw and the big teeth. And that's consistent with how he portrayed immigrant workers as almost uh, ape-like.
10: And this, this section talks about the, how the police were used right. to put down the strike. Can yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Well, the police
11: were were had mixed feelings about the strike. The police chief, you'll see in the slideshow, put out a curfew notice and tried to clear the streets, but the police were related to strikers and their families. It was a regular working-class job. The strike really was not broken until John Garrett, the president of the union you know, contacted Rutherford B. Hayes, President of the United States, said send me federal troops.
10: And this section over here deals with Yes, yes.
11: And they were sent in then from Fort McHenry. And if you remember your history, Rutherford B. Hayes was elected in 1877 in a contested election, got the votes of southern states by promising to withdraw all federal troops from the states. And basically that turned the South back over to the plantation owners and the white supremacists. Which, Which
10: ended Reconstruction. Which
11: ended Reconstruction, exactly. But the promise was no federal troops in the states. He hadn't been in office two months when he brought federal troops into Baltimore City to break the strike. And you'll see in his diary a concern about, gee, we need to find a better thing. The whole question of industrial policy and the position of workers and what should the government do was all new at this time. People were just starting to figure it out because this was the first large industry. And in the years to come on the railroads, there were major strikes. uh, The Knights of Labor had in the 1880s, the Pullman Strike in 1894. And to be fair, the first national labor legislation, the Railway Labor Act, was passed in 1924, was really the result of this strike. It was that pressure by the workers and their willingness to sacrifice and willingness to struggle that finally got a law passed that gave him some protection. But what you see here are the armories um, with the weapons. These are just Springfield rifles. These are left over from the Civil War, and a new uh, standard issue. And one of the things that was interesting was there was a debate in the country at the time about whether we even need an army. And the army had not been paid for three months because there were people who said, we don't need an army. It's the civic duty of everybody to go into the militia. And William Tecumseh Sherman was one who publicly advocated for a large standing army. And uh, this kind of tipped the uh, balance in the favor of the larger standing army. Can you
10: talk about some of the scenes that
11: were- Well, these are the scenes of the armory marching up here, this large one here, the 6th Regiment. Their armory was over by what is the shot tower, by the post office. um, in East Baltimore. And they were called out, and the guys had to march down a narrow stairway. The streets were being paved. It was a time, it's 5.30 or 6 o'clock, when people were just coming home from work. The mayor rang the bell at City Hall. It was called Big Sam, which only rings in times of emergency. So people gathered. They started throwing rocks at the strikers, I mean at the militia, um, and demonstrating against them. What you see here then, is the militia shooting people down by city hall. And as I said there were 10 innocent people including a 14-year-old newsboy supporting his widowed mother, another guy whose brother was in the militia, he'd got up on a lamp post to ask where is my brother? Well, I better get out of here and he turned around to go and got shot through the back of the neck.
10: What what were the uh, the strikers armed with?
11: Nothing. These were paving bricks that were, I I wouldn't probably call these weapons as the strikers. They were stones that were left um, in Pratt Street that were being used to repave the streets. This is the thing about Richard Zepp, who was a strike leader in Martinsburg. His grandniece lives in Northeast Baltimore City, Grace Barnes, and I hope she will be here today. Uh, George Zepp, the brother, her grandfather was also involved in the strike, but as a scab. Richard was a leader. But you'll see in Martinsburg, the mayor was a railroad worker, all the militia were railroad workers. And so they said, arrest Richard Zepp. And so they did, and then he said, well, Richard needs to eat first. So they let him go in a restaurant, and then he went out the back door, and basically nobody ever bothered him. But it was a great, uh, great discussion.
10: And in your book, um, when you were talking about the, the power of community, in, this, in the railroad, you talk about a, a railroad leader who, or, or uh, uh, a scab who is going to go right. operate a train, but his wife and his daughter got came. up
11: and begged them. That was yeah. George Zepp. Oh, that was George. Uh, George uh, yeah, okay. But it's a famous Zep family, and there's a, now a museum in Martinsburg, which uh, memorializes them. But I had a wonderful discussion with his granddaughter, mm. and she has memories of the grandfather a little bit, and some stuff from the strike, but uh, not much. She's a sharp. At 94, as you are sharper probably than I am, mm-hmm. but it's wonderful. So this exhibit will be up until next year. Okay. So people who want to come can come, and it's a great, uh, great exhibit. All
10: right. And 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 uh, and Bill, as you were as you were helping put together today's activities yeah. and events, um, we we talked to some of the railroad workers and some of the union leaders, yeah. talking about how um, some of the conditions, some of the things they're fighting for. Right have parallels and roots in the strike um, that happened 140 years ago but uh, you talk about this moment in yeah. in as far as labor organized labor goes as, as worker as it's the huge. fight for workers rights um, <clears throat> talk about why it's important to have this memory of of what the power well, of workers today
11: if you see my slideshow you see the first slide is history is a guide for tomorrow mm-hmm. and I often will say as I will say today and often that When people who are religious have tough times, they read the Bible. When I have tough times, I read labor history. Because it shows the determination and the spirit of people who said, I'm not satisfied with what I have. And we need to find that now. And the anger of the people who voted for Donald Trump, for example, needs to be channeled. You get angry at the wealthy people, and then you vote for one. It just is inconsistent.
7: Okay, that's a um, a review, I guess, of of a display in Baltimore in 2017, covering the great railroad strike, great upheaval, it's called, 1877. All of a sudden, in response to... Capitalists cutting their wages, railroad people, all over the country. See, that's the thing. This was countrywide. People in St. Louis, and San Francisco, and all these cities that this guy named, all shared in this moment. And it wasn't really organized. That's the thing. But it was a great upheaval against the money classes who were starving the workers who were creating their wealth. And like he said, if you're not feeling well, read labor history, okay, and it'll inspire you. How about labor history in two? We've got a little bit of time left. Medicare becomes a reality.
12: Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1965. That was the day that U.S. President Lyndon Baines Johnson signed Medicare into law. This federally funded health care program provides assistance to one of the country's most vulnerable populations the elderly at the time the law was enacted many seniors found it difficult if not impossible to get private health insurance president johnson signed the law in a ceremony in independence missouri the hometown of former president harry truman while in office in the 1940s truman had proposed a national health insurance plan unfortunately he was unable to get his plan through congress president johnson wanted to recognize truman's efforts At the bill signing ceremony, President Truman received the very first symbolic Medicare card. The law went into full effect in 1966. 19 million people registered for the benefit. One of the labor leaders who fought for Medicare was Nelson Hale Cruikshank. Nelson held several positions for the AFL-CIO, and he spent his career advocating for social insurance protections for working people. He earned the nickname the Father of Medicare. The same year that the Medicare law was passed, Kirkshank explained why he thought it was so important to reform health insurance. He said, quote, In too many doctor's offices today, the Hippocratic Oath has given way to the Dow Jones Average. By 2010, 48 million Americans received their health insurance through the Medicare program. Eight million were people with disabilities. The rest were seniors. The program has had a tremendous impact on the quality of life of millions of older Americans. Yet, since its inception, there have been those who aim to make it less accessible by scaling back benefits and raising the eligibility age. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. This day in labor history, the year was 1970. That was the day that the NFL Players Association went out on strike. The American Football League and the National Football League officially merged that year. Each league had their own players association. With the league merger, they joined forces into one union. The players elected John Mackey, a tight end with the Baltimore Colts, their first president. Frustrated by pay and lack of control over their careers, the players voted to strike. The strike lasted for two days. The owners threatened to cancel the season. The NFL used its powerful PR machine to vilify the players in the press. They characterized the players as greedy and stoked fan anger over the walkout. The two sides met again at the bargaining table and reached a collective bargaining agreement. The agreement covered four years. The players won improvements to their pensions and dental care. They also secured the right to have agent representation for the first time. But many of the disagreements over pay and control remained unsettled. In 1974, the players were back out on the picket line for five weeks during the summer. Eight years later, a 57-day strike disrupted the season. Seven weeks of games were canceled. Then again, five years later, the union went on strike during the season. This time, some of the players crossed the picket lines, including stars like Joe Montana and Lawrence Taylor. This broke the strike without settling on a contract. Today, the NFL Players Association continues to push for improved player safety and revenue sharing the impact of concussions on players' long-term health remains an important issue for the union. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1917. Frank Little, an activist for the Industrial Workers of the World, or Wobblies, was lynched near Butte, Montana. His beaten body was found hung off a railroad trestle. On it was pinned a disturbing note. It read, quote, others take notice. First and last warning. 3-7-77-L-D-C-S-S-W-T. The numbers were the measurement of a grave. Each letter was the initial of a union organizer. The letter L for Frank Little was circled. The warning was clear. Union organizers leave town or die. Butte was copper mining country, and efforts to unionize the miners had turned the area into a battleground. Frank had arrived that July to help in the efforts to support striking miners. Frank Little was a leader of the IWW with experience organizing free speech campaigns, lumberjacks, and miners. Although not much is known of his early life, it is thought his mother was Cherokee and his father was a Quaker. He organized the wives of the miners to join in the pickets and helped build solidarity between the multiple unions that organized in the area. The Anaconda Mining Company took note of his presence, but could not find a legal means to stop him. Then, early on that fateful day, men came to his boarding house. They claimed they were police officers. They gagged Little and stuffed him into a car. They beat him and drug him through part of town tied to the car bumper. And it was at the county line where they hung Frank Little's body. News of the atrocities spread far and wide. Thousands attended the funeral. Not surprisingly, the authorities never found his murderers. Some doubt they ever tried. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Labor in Two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1993. That was the day that the Family Medical Leave Act went into effect. Union members worked hard to support this legislation, testifying before Congress and holding rallies. It was an uphill battle to pass the bill. Starting in 1984, family medical leave was brought before Congress. Year after year, the bill failed to win enough votes. In 1991, it finally passed Congress, but was vetoed by President George H.W. Bush. He vetoed it again the following year. Then, in February of 1992, newly elected President Bill Clinton signed the FMLA into law. It guaranteed that most employers with 50 or more workers must give their employees up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave for a serious health condition for themselves, their spouse, parent or child. In his speech signing the act, President Bill Clinton declared, quote, this bill will strengthen our families and I believe it will strengthen our businesses and our economy as well. He went on to say, I know that men and women are more productive when they are sure they won't lose their jobs because they're trying to be good parents, good children. Our businesses should not lose the services of these dedicated Americans. And over the long run, the lessons of the most productive companies in the world, here at home and around the world, are that those who put their people first are those who will triumph in the global economy. He said that, Family and medical leave is a matter of pure common sense and a matter of common decency. It will provide Americans what they need most, peace of mind. Never again will parents have to fear losing their jobs because of their families. Labor History and 2 brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the...
7: is labor and love where we bring it to you. How it is. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. And never but never let anyone into your heart. Not a friend of labor only Hang in there right now like black plastic Ready to come Scott the song Walker. says when you can't see your way and you feel that you've gone astray doing all you know how to do. remember God has not forgotten you. Hold the your head said, up and be down. true to him. Feeling good, read doors. labor history.
2: Crew, the festival is upon us. Woo! L- scurvy Steve, how many comics?
3: Over a hundred comics.
2: You're looking good, Scurvy Steve. Glad the scurvy hasn't taken you.
3: Aye aye, Captain.
2: You, no liver Mary. How many venues? We've got nine venues, sir. And you, boy. What's your name? Very good. And finally, eleven fingers Sally. What about the tickets? You can find all of your tickets on Eventbrite, sir. Check out www.mutinyradio.fm. Arr! What is that? I don't know what a website is. I'm a pirate. <laughs> 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 but but f- quick to the festival! All sails ahead! Arr! Arr! Pirate Look noises. Ambience. Ah, still
12: thinking. It is
1: all over you. Well, you know who's headlining at Cobb's Comedy Club on Sunday? Who? Who? Mark Neuer. Oh,
9: oh fucking Mark. Mark. Oh, my God. I hear he's
1: the best of the worst. He gives you the business, y'all. Yeah, it's Mark Neuer on Cobb's Comedy Club, Sunday, August 13th. At
0: 7.30 p.m. Please come and come all.
1: Don't miss your chance to see Mark Neuer headlining The Best of the Worst, Sunday, August 13th at 7.30 p.m. at Cobb's Comedy Club. 9.15 Columbus Avenue, San Francisco, hosted by Emily Rudolph and featuring Ernest Evangelista, Honiton Ortiz, the legendary front office, and the one and only Spencer Devine. Get your tickets online now at Cobb'sComedy.com. Remember, there are more at the door. And get ready to get served the business. Side effects may include acid reflux, black lung, black foot, IBS, racism, homophobia, arachnophobia, erectile dysfunction, erections lasting more than four hours, spontaneous human combustion, appendicitis, ingrown toenails, anal leakage, and or cancellation.
0: But I'm not swinging through the senior facility, Best of Mysterio at Boggle, or getting beautifully plowed by the Rhino. I'm headed down to Beauty Radio at the corner of 21st and Florida. They got some shlemmyles doing the laugh laugh. But hey, don't be a schmuck and donate two to five dollars on... Hold, hold on, what is this? Let me get my glasses. The print's too small. Right. Venmo... That's not real. What is that, Swedish? You knew that, right? This is in San Francisco. I'll drown it on. It's nap time.
1: Weekly comedy at the best neighborhood bar in the city. Happy Hour is when the comedy is the cheapest. Happy Hour,
13: the most free two hours of hour-long comedy on the radio and internet streaming live at 2781 21st Street. Come down, be in the audience.
6: Dog-friendly.
13: Dog-friendly. We are. Mutiny Radio is absolutely dog-friendly. A dog party. Ain't no party like a dog party. Dog party at Mutiny Radio.
2: Every Friday, dog party <laughs> at Mutiny Radio. <laughs> Happy Hour.
13: 278-121st Street. Happy Hour. Mutiny Radio.fm. Here in dot SF.
3: Calling all crusty's punks and poses. Pick your posteriors up off the pavement. Pack up your pins and patches, and prepare to party. The Pacific Northwest Vestfest returns this Saturday only at the SeaTac Expo Center.
0: Twizzle, but not too much. Hey, Daddy, remember after soccer practice when it was raining and you didn't come?
1: I really don't. Anywho,
0: take it with the freezers. Free
1: reservations on Eventbrite. Fucking
0: LSD,
2: fap, acid and fapping, fapping and acid, acid, fapping, fapping and acid, fap, 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 acid. Thank you. That song is called Acid and Fapping.
5: San Francisco, you-